Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Greetings and welcome. No, it's not Mark Petroni. It's Jocelyn Bamford filling in for Mark Petroni as he enjoys a well-deserved vacation. Hope everyone enjoyed their long weekend. I will be sitting here in the pilot seat today for the next two solid gold hours of freedom-loving news talk awesomeness. Producer extraordinary Jyoti Panu will be my co-pilot. And I hope we can do Mark proud today. So just sit back and relax and don't touch that dial. We have quite a show for you today. Um, With us today is going to be Dr. Leslin Lewis, candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. After that, we have Vic Fideli, Minister of Economic Development, who's going to talk to us about Stage 3. We have Tom Korski, Managing Editor of Black Locks Matter who is minding Ontario's business, and we're going to talk about the wee scandals just not going away. Um, We have Justin Danoff, Director of the Centre for Free Enterprise Project, and he's going to talk to us about ESG investing. Um, The Minister for Small Business and Red Tape, uh, the Honourable Prambit Sakaria, is going to join us. Uh, John Galt, President and CEO of Husky Fuel Injection, and Minister Jeff Urich, Ministry of Environment, Conservative, Conservation and Parks will be talking to us. And Dr. Patrick Moore, our favorite guest, is going to talk to us from EcoSense. Uh, Filling in this week for Mark will be a a whole list of fun hosts. So make sure you stay tuned. Peter Gossman, the Vice President of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada, will be co-hosting tomorrow. Jasmine uh, Pickles, now Jasmine Moulton, after being married, will be on uh, Thursday and Catherine Swift, who I've always had, had much admiration for, will be co-hosting on Friday. So it's going to be a great week while Mark's on vacation. Hopefully, we will do him proud. So make sure that you uh, join on in. So uh, our first guest uh, will be uh, Dr. Leslin Lewis. And Dr. Leslin Lewis is a candidate for the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and is hailing from uh, my favorite place in the world, Scarborough, Ontario. So let's all welcome Dr. Lewis to the program. Hello, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We're quite excited to have you. So uh, for folks that don't know Dr. Lewis, uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to have the listeners get to know her a bit. So Dr. Lewis, will you give our listeners just a little bit of a background um, for, for what you've done in politics and outside of politics so they can get to know you a little bit better? 
Sure. Um, so I, I would start by saying I'm a loving mother of two, which means that I I can multitask and do many, many things simultaneously. Um, and I've done this while I've been a lawyer and running my own law firm. Um, I've represented Canadian companies all over the world on international trade agreements, multi-million dollar uh, trade contracts. I've also taught at university, taught law at Osgoode Hall Law School. I've taught at the University of Toronto and at York University. I've been very active in the party at the grassroots level on EDAs since about 2009. And in 2015, I was asked by the Honourable Stephen Harper to help out the party in the election where there was a scandal in a particular riding. And I was asked to jump in after the writ had dropped and um, and run a campaign in just a few weeks. And we did a phenomenal job, got the best results in the GTA um, in, in that uh, year and um, we just proved that we with hard work and determination we could rise to the top wonderful well uh, for our listeners give us your your elevator pitch why should you be the leader of the federal conservative party well, in the last five years, Jocelyn, we've seen an erosion of the fundamental freedoms and the destruction of our economy. And I think people right now want authenticity in, in government. They want someone who has a comprehensive platform that includes the environment, includes the economy, it, making sure that Canada is situated on a national stage, putting Canada first, and who's not afraid to take on difficult issues. Canadians have been telling me that they've been walking around on eggshells and that they're, they don't even feel free to speak and have normal conversations. You need someone who's going to courageously challenge that narrative. You need somebody who's not a part of the party establishment, who can connect with the grassroots, who has bold policies, and who, who, who will unite the party and unite the country. And I think the next uh, leader needs to be able to win in key critical areas, such as large urban centers in GTAs, and be able to bring in new conservatives into the party and win a majority. And I believe that I'm that person that can unite the party and that can unite the country, deal with issues like regional discontent and making sure that all Canadians are served and we have a common purpose of prosperity and unity. Wonderful. So, so talk to us about the manufacture and the resource sector are our second and third GDP contributors. And, and they've been hammered with our own government, with carbon tax, pipeline approvals being denied, and the proposed clean fuel standards and declaring plastics as toxic. toxic. So tell us what you would do uh, differently if you were uh, to lead the country. Well, Jocelyn, I think it's very important that we realize that with respect to, um, you know, the manufacturing sector, that it, it is integrally connected to our environmental sector and that we don't have to have one over the other. They're not mutually exclusive. The Liberals' plan has always been to kill the energy sector. My plan is the opposite. I believe that our energy sector is the most environmentally friendly, among the most environmentally friendly in the world. And the Liberals' plan would have a net effect of increasing global emissions. So I believe that by... by 
by really focusing on building our energy sector, we're actually uh, being good environmental stewards. And so that's a part of, of my platform. I have a master's of environmental studies. And so I've spent years in looking at real solutions, not just a carbon tax. I don't believe in the carbon tax because I believe that it focuses on punishing the, the poorest in our country. I believe on real solutions that will uh, have impacts on our forests, our lakes, our rivers, and that will not damage our economy. I believe that we can have a greener plan that creates jobs, um, that focuses on natural resource res- re, uh development and that focuses on innovative policies that incentivizes businesses to develop to hire Canadians and to do so in an environmentally sustainable way so uh, you have been boldly speaking about free speech since the beginning so uh, highlight for us what you would do to ensure that we have free speech and critical thought in our entire community well, free speech is very important. It's a cornerstone of our democracy. People need to feel that they are free to, um, you know, just to communicate. And what we've seen is we've seen an erosion of free speech. And so what I would do is I would, I would safeguard our free speech by, um, first of all, abolishing, repealing certain uh, legislation that can, can confines our speech even before, um, you know, that's not just focused on criminalizing, say, harmful speech, but controlling our speech. So like Bill C-16, Bill C-8, those I would repeal. In addition, I would hold universities accountable because these institutions should be disseminating knowledge. And yet when they are um, controlling, containing free speech, what we find is that they are perpetuating this whole cancelled culture. So I would make funding attached to their ability to make sure that free speech is celebrated on university campuses. See, uh, Bill C-69 and C- Bill C-148 are, are when we go back to uh, the resource sector and manufacturing, are two bills that have really hammered both the resource sector and the manufacturing sector, which, again, are our second and third biggest con- contributors to our GDP and uh, represent thousands and thousands of jobs in Canada that have been lost. What would you do with those two pieces of legislation and how would you ensure that we have good Canadian jobs? That's very important um, because what we found is that the Liberals have implemented legislation that really, really has tripled our resource sector. And, you know, many people have been blaming the Paris Accord um, for this. No, our resource sector, the problems that we have have been self-inflicted. And so one of the most important things is to make sure that we repeal Bill C-48 and we repeal Bill C-69 and that we start inviting um industries back to Canada and, and, and create enabling legislation that will allow our resource sector to thrive. And absolutely, we have seen a, a just destruction of our resource sector from the federal government. And connected with that, 
as you well know, is the manufacturing sector. And uh, when you take down the resource sector, there are so many companies in Ontario, um, almost as many workers in the resource sector or in the uh, manufacturing sector that support the resource sector as in the automotive sector. So we really need to have a lot of protection going forward uh, to make sure that we have jobs in the economy. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what you see as a future for our children in Canada. Well, I, I see the vision for Canada as, as one that where we will restore ourselves, our, our country, to being the beacon of hope and opportunity for those all around the world that has that have chosen Canada. And I think that what we need to do first is we need to focus on our national unity. It has hit you know, an all-time low in the last five years. We're seeing the um, emergence of Wexit, um, which is very, very disconcerting for our national unity. Uh, We're seeing regional discontent in Quebec and Atlantic regions. And so what we need to do is, beyond just repealing bills like Bill C-48 and Bill C-69, we need to focus on uh, policies that will keep us united. And we, we really need to get our house in order and make sure that we can plan for future pandemics, not to be caught off guard um, in the future again. We also have to make sure that our our children are not um, are not dealing with with immense debt uh, that we are irresponsibly and irresponsibly burdening them with. So we have to make sure that we don't heap loads of debt on future generations. And we we need to grow our economy. We need to grow our manufacturing sector for every uh, oil and gas. Uh, job that's created in the resource sector. There are seven jobs, splinter jobs, that's created in the manufacturing sector all over the country. So building pipelines, developing our natural resources, using our natural endowments that we have been given in order to build our economy, that is the way to go. That is the way to prosper Canadians. And, And for the next generation, I'm looking to build a generation that is not worried about graduating from school and competing with their parents for jobs, but a a society where our industry, our um, employers who create 85% of all jobs, small and medium-sized businesses, that making sure that they have the capacity and the help to create jobs for the next generation to thrive. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Leslin Lewis. Uh, Wonderful to have you. Uh, Dr. Lewis is a candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party, and we're on to a break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities cbp agents and officers are keeping people safe join u.s customs and border protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself learn more at cbp.gov careers 
Stream us live at saga960am.ca. to the Mark Petroni radio program. If you'd like to call, here's the number. 416-640-0200. That's 416-640-0200. The Mark Petroni radio program. Heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we're back. It's Jocelyn Bamford sitting in for the vacationing Mark Petroni And on the line with us right now, we have our favorite Minister of Economic Development and Trade, Minister Victor Fideli. Good morning, Minister Fideli. Jocelyn, it's great to speak with you today. I hope you had a good long weekend, and I would just love to hear you on the air today. Ah, you're so sweet. Well, thank you, Minister Fideli. I hope you had a great long weekend, too. And we are so happy that we have made it to stage three. So, yes, yes, it's so exciting. Can you review with the listeners what this means and what's changed for us? Well, there's a lot of things that are changed, uh, primarily the gathering limit. First of all, this is it. Uh, there, there is no stage four. So what you see today, at least for the time being, is what you get. Uh, this means that for the most part, the economy has been reopened. Yes, there are restrictions. And throughout time, uh, you will see that some of those restrictions will change. So, the, so gatherings, for instance, um, indoor gathering will increase to 50 people. Outdoor gathering limits will increase to 100 people. We still want the two-meter distance. You'll see that masks are mandatory in a lot of places. Um, but in a theater, for instance, if you've got a, the limit was set at 50 people in a theater, but if you've got like a 12-plex, it's now changing so that it can be 50 in each of those. So other than that, I mean... For the most part, the economy is reopened with restrictions. You can go inside a restaurant now, but of course, there'll be uh, about 50% of the capacity there. So a lot of us are concerned about uh, the fallout of COVID-19 on the on the Ontario economy. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you're expecting to see over the next months um, and what actions you've put to kind of mitigate some of those uh, uh, fallouts from this COVID-19? Yeah, we're, we're uh, you know, when you think about where we were in March, um, what the immediate was the reaction and the tightening. The next phase, the one that we're just coming through now, is the reopening. And the next stage really will be the recovery. And so we've done uh, several things for uh, the business community, um, including... Um, the development of an Ontario-made program, and including the development of Ontario Together, where we're seeing companies manufacture PPE now. You know, the Premier, Jocelyn, said at the beginning of all this, never again will we, Ontario, be beholding to others to make our products. He wanted to see us starting to make our own Uh, goods again, the powerhouse that Ontario was in the past and still is throughout Canada. And so we started with Ontario together with the manufacture of personal protective equipment. And, you know, we have to say thanks to all of the companies that 
retooled or rejigged or jumped into the business of making PPE. And now we make masks, gowns, sanitizer, uh, wipes, sanitized wipes, all of the things uh, other than gloves that we need are now made in Ontario. Almost everything we need uh, from a personal protective equipment, ventilators, are all made in Ontario now. So um, we've seen that, and it's been a big part of our recovery in Ontario as well, Jocelyn. And that's wonderful because we know how important manufacturing is to the economy and for growth and for jobs for our kids. How are you going to take this uh, momentum for PPE and translate it to other areas in manufacturing to really boost the economy? Well, the Premier, again, was very clear at the beginning uh, when it was all right, first it's going to be PPE, and then there was a threat on some of our uh, pharmaceuticals. And the premier has said, you know, next we're going to look at pharmaceuticals. Uh, and and I, as the minister of not only trade but of economic development and job creation, have been asking these companies, what would it take to add a million square feet and, and make up a number here to your plant? Uh, and so we're having these kind of discussions with these companies and saying, you know, really, what's it going to take now to, to make a new product in Ontario, an additional product, one that we were bringing in from, say, Asia? What can we do? And so those are ongoing discussions. We've opened a, uh, we've started and created a brand new investment agency in Ontario called uh, Invest Ontario. And we're just putting the board together now uh, and that board will then hire our team in the fall, and that team will look really in three areas, life sciences, uh, information technology, and advanced manufacturing. Those are the three initial areas that we'll look to bring in foreign direct investment and repatriate some of these companies into Ontario. So, Minister, the green energy plan in Ontario under the previous Liberal government resulted in many manufacturers paying between 28 and 30 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity and pushing a whole bunch of companies uh, south of the border. What are, what's the Ontario government doing to address this um, in terms of electricity and keeping uh, companies right here in Ontario? It's a great question, Jocelyn, and, and it reveals one of the biggest uh, problems. Uh, I don't like to be political, but I will for a moment. It reveals one of the biggest problems that our government had when we were elected. Uh, as Premier Ford has said, this was one of the, 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 the largest transformation of wealth from the people of Ontario to very, very, very few liberal insiders who were given green energy contracts. You know, we were paying 80 cents a kilowatt hour to make solar power to only at that time sell it for 8 cents a kilowatt hour. And of course, uh, it, 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 the, the green, the flawed green energy plan did everything that we knew it would do in terms of uh, all things bad for Ontario. It began to uh, uh, increase the price of energy uh, in Ontario and that sent companies away. The more companies that were sent away, the the fixed costs were the same, the higher the costs would be for every business. So uh, I'll just exacerbate the problem one more minute and then talk about what we're doing. You know, I live up in northern Ontario, uh, and in Timmins, Ontario, was the single largest user of power in all of Ontario, larger than 
larger than any auto plant, larger than anything. It was a smelter, uh, extrata copper. And you have to think, we were paying at the time, Quebec and uh, New York and other northern states, we were paying them every single night to take our surplus energy because we were making uh, power that we didn't need in Ontario with all of these liberal contracts. And... and uh, Extrata Copper had a knock on their door one day. They're only think about it. Where I live is is only forty five minutes from the Quebec border. Extrata was about 70, 70 miles from the Quebec border. They got a knock on their door, and Quebec government said, "Move your whole operation to Quebec, and we'll give you power that uh, at a fraction of what you're paying today." And they did. That was three or four hundred megawatts. I mean, a massive plant, gone, it leveled. The building was torn down, leveled. It's a vacant lot when you drive by today. So that's the problem in Ontario, is that we made all this power that we didn't need at a price we couldn't afford. So it's a, it's a, the Auditor General told us it's a $30, $40 billion problem. We're going to hear more, Jocelyn, in the later part of the fall from our Minister of Energy. And I, I, I know that that's never a great answer to tell you that you're going to be hearing more in the future. But that's, you know, COVID has certainly taken our attention uh, as it should right now and i know our minister of energy has been working on the plans bringing relief to families throughout covid um by allowing the time the time of use to go away uh everybody pays the same rate we've had some relief for the commercial businesses but you'll hear the full plan uh, in the fall this is one this is what keeps as the premier would tell you this is the one file that keeps them up at night and, but it's also what gets us up in the morning, Jocelyn, is solving this, uh, this uh, liberal scandal. And one last really quick question, because we're pressed for time here, but on the federal government side, uh, Gerald Butts and, and his team are, are pushing um, federal green energy policy across the province in their resilient recovery. What are you going to do to kind of push back and make sure that the all of Canada understands what happened in Ontario under that green energy policy. Well, you know, we're, we're certainly taking the federal government to court over the carbon tax. We know that uh, as we compete for industries here in Ontario, uh, when you have competing jurisdictions like uh, Ohio and, and Michigan and Pennsylvania and New York, upstate New York, they don't have this, uh, uh, this tax. And so we lose foreign direct investment because of it. So we'll continue to push hard on our side. But I would encourage all of the uh, organizations who have uh, suffered under the uh, uh, the high cost of energy to continue to share the stories of how we got into this place. You know, I wrote five different books uh, on the finances in Ontario and disclosed and exposed the flawed, failed, uh, failed uh, so-called a fair hydro deal um, to the Auditor General, who then uh, uh, brought this forward. And, and uh, we continue to have exposed all of these things. I think the rest of the country needs to hear about that. Thank you, Minister Fideli. That's the Minister of Economic Development, Victor Fideli, joining us on Saga 960. And we are off to a break. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. If you'd like to call, here's the number 416 640 0200. That's 416 640 0200. The Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we're back. Jocelyn Bamford in for the vacationing Mark Petroni. And just on the break, was talking to Joe T about grocery shopping. And let's all just keep our distance and wear a mask. It's so simple. If we just follow the rules, um, we'll be in a much better spot. But uh, uh, next on our program, we have Tom Gorski, Blacklock's managing editor at Minding Ottawa's Business. Welcome to the program, uh, Tom. Uh, this wee scandal's just not going away, and I have a great clip we're going to play. Uh, that was probably the definitive moment in Canadian politics this year. It was Pierre Polyev during testimony with the Prime Minister. Let's play the clip. You've had a month to look into that. You knew you were going to testify here. Again, how much money total have your brother, mother, and spouse received from this organization? How much? That information has been publicly shared, but I will highlight. Well, then tell my me mother, what it is. Uh, my mother How much? has uh, has just the dollar uh, figure throughout her life. The dollar uh, figure, in Prime various Minister. Various ways and is uh, proud much? of the work that she's done, and I'm proud of her. How much? Uh, I'm looking for can, a dollar figure. We can, we can get that number for you if you like. It's been in, out in the media. It's been in the media, but you don't know it. I don't have it in front of me. And quite you frankly, don't know how much your family has received from this organization, which you tried to give a half billion dollars. Really? Can I answer, Mr. Polyev? I'm waiting. You haven't done an answer so far. Let's make this the first one. That just says it all to me. Tom? Uh, Jocelyn, uh, we do a rough calculation, just arithmetic. comes to about... about uh, five hundred and forty to five hundred and sixty thousand, somewhere in that range, is over well over half a million. This is in talent fees, free trips to New York and London, and expenses for the prime minister's uh, wife, mother, and brother. It's a lot of money. It is. It's staggering, and the fact that he sat there and said, "I really have no clue either." Uh, tells you he's not being truthful or he's completely out of touch with reality because I certainly, if my uh, spouse was getting that much money, I would sure know about it because that would be a big boon to our bank account line. Um, So it's literally absolutely ridiculous that people are still defending this prime minister. And this isn't the first one. Like, let's, you know, for me, it was over at Mark Norman, said uh, Admiral 
Admiral Norman, if uh, everyone will recall, was the uh, lifelong uh, bureaucrat, dedicated his life to this country, naval officer, decorated, who was basically uh, railroaded um, into some trumped-up charges uh, because the government was embarrassed about a contract that they were trying to uh, remove from Davie's shipyard and uh, bring it to another shipyard. So, I mean, there was a, a person that dedicated their life. Uh, they were basically trying to ruin him. F- for me, that was the end of this federal government. What what say you, Tom? Well, there was uh, the, the difficulty was, that, you know, in terms of weed charity, you know, what was the context? I mean, there was a lot of money that went out the door really quickly. We calculated, this was a Department of Finance figure, uh, in early innings in the pandemic, you recall, World Health Organization, remember the date, March 11th, declares a global pandemic. The Fed started to borrow at the rate of $30 billion a week, billion with a B. They, the, were, the money going out the door was simply jaw-dropping, and there were lobbyists Renting across Parliament Hill, you could see them. You've never seen people run the four-minute mile in a skinny suit, waving a briefcase. Lobbyists were doing it because there was money in the day. In the case of We Charity, the entire premise of the program was jobless post-secondary students would get up to $5,000 to help out with the local United Way Boys and Girls Club Salvation Army, whatever. The problem was the total grant sold, as it was sold to the taxpayer, was about $900 million. Even We Charity says that was never going to happen. They estimated the total payout benefit to students was going to be as low as $200 million, and quote-unquote, very few were ever getting $5,000. So what was it all about, Jocelyn? That's the question that has to be answered. What was the point of this program? Well, for me, the question I have is, what was gonna? Who was gonna have uh, the database of all of these uh, students that were of voting age? And what were they gonna do with it? And who was gonna own it? And when you look at some of the commercials, there's the Wii commercial featuring Justin Trudeau, and to me, it looks like a super PAC. It doesn't look like a charity. So they get. Uh, they act like a super PAC, but they get charity uh, statuses on their taxes. And the question still remains, what happens to all that information and who has access to it? Now, they have denied that. We charity has said we were never going to give our database to the Liberal Party of Canada. But they have a problem. There was very close collegial relationships between the Prime Minister's office, the Minister of Finance's office, and the Kielberger brothers. This, is, this has been documented. No one denies that. There's a law. It's called the Conflict of Interest Act. It's been around for 152 years in various forms. It says you can't do that. If you're a member of cabinet, you cannot be having a federal contractor hire your daughter. You cannot have that federal contractor give you a free African safari. You have to report that. You can't vote on that. It's wrong. Bill Morneau is still in cabinet. No one can figure out why it's been, uh, I think we're on day 11 of the Bill Morneau death watch. 
Everyone says he has to go. Everyone gets it except Bill Morneau. Even the prime minister in testifying in that committee, you know, he was a little shaky on some details. You mentioned the arithmetic. You were left with the impression he was working in the basement of the office, working on the economy. I don't really know what the guys were doing upstairs in the office. There was one thing he remembered with crystal clarity. My finance minister never told me about the African safari. That part everyone remembered. It, it, it is unbelievable, this whole scandal. And, Tom, you reported in Black Locks this weekend that the MPs are ordering cabinet records. So can you talk about this and what's going to happen with this? Those are secret, and the uh, MPs on the Commons Finance Committee said, we don't care. What's the context, 20 words or less? SNC-Lavalin investigation by the Ethics Commissioner hit a brick wall, and it was called cabinet confidentiality. That is everything discussed in cabinet, every memo, every briefing note, every report, top secret. And they wouldn't disclose the Lavalin matters to the Ethics Commissioner. They invoked secrecy. And MPs, who have a better memory than some other people in this town, said, not this time. We want those records. We're getting those records. They voted to compel Cabinet to release all records that have to do with We Charity, just so they can make sure everybody got their story straight. It's a problem for Cabinet. So another scandal that seems to be brewing is the refusal of the federal uh, government to to reveal details of the COVID-19 contract. And, you know, I did some a quick research just at the beginning um, of who, uh, you know, who was awarded uh, some of these contracts. And there seems to be a lot of folks that have uh, liberal ties, the company making ventilators, Bayless Medical, um, is uh, owned by a former liberal cabinet minister or MP, um, there seems to be um, a lot of contracts given to companies in Quebec. Um, could you talk about this brewing scandal and what you could see happening uh, going forward? There is a, uh, our favorite is there's a company in Montreal, it's ha- it has a head office there. Remember this name, Medicom, M-E-D-I-C-O-M as in mother, Medicom. And Medicom closed its last Canadian factory last year. They didn't have a Canadian mask factory, but within days of the pandemic being declared, the Department of Industry called this company and said, we'd like you to become our supplier. There was no competitive bidding. No other mask companies that still have factories in Canada were invited to apply. It was a 10-year contract, Jocelyn, a 10-year contract to supply masks to the government of Canada. It took us a long time to find out what that contract was worth. Found out today, uh, it, they received total contracts without bidding worth $113 million to supply made in Canada masks. Problem, they couldn't make them in Canada because they didn't own a factory. They've since received $4 million in loans from the government of Quebec, financing by the Quebec Credit Union Association to supply those masks, they got that call. MPs want to see that contract. There are so many questions about that contract, you wouldn't believe it. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There was no communication on how uh, people uh, qualified, how the 
process was uh, in handing out these millions and millions of contracts. And these are questions uh, the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses have had since the beginning of, of the pandemic and these contracts award. We, we'd like to ha- see a full disclosure on all of these contracts, their values, and how people qualify, because it seems like the government is picking winners and losers, and that's not what a government ought to do. They should create an environment that everybody can compete and rise and fall on their abilities. And that's just doesn't seem to be what happened during this COVID pandemic. So um, hopefully, uh, Blacklocks, you folks have always been great at uncovering and minding Ottawa's business. Hopefully, we're going to hear more from the future about all of these contracts. And we thank you, uh, Tom Korski, uh, uh, Managing Editor. Uh, Keep minding Ontario's business. We uh, are Ottawa's business. We need to hear what's going on. Oh, my pleasure, Jocelyn. Have a great day. Have a wonderful day. And we're off to a break. Uh, Jocelyn Bamford, Infra Patroni, here on Saga 960. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960am.ca. Listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. If you'd like to call, here's the number 416 640 0200. That's 416 640 0200. The Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we're back. Uh, welcome back to the Mark Petroni Show. Jocelyn Bamford in for the vacationing Mark Petroni. Um, joining us on the program now is Justin Danhoff, Director of the Centre Free Enterprise Project, National Centre for Public Policy Research. The National Centre for Public Policy Research is a communication and research foundation supporting a strong national defense and dedicated to providing free market solutions to today's public policy pro- problems. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, Jocelyn. Thanks so much for having me on. And how is the weather down there? I think you're out of Washington. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're experiencing a little tropical storm at the moment, but, but we'll get through it. Well, good. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we want to talk today. There's a, a lot of talk among large corporations about ESG investing. Um, could you just walk our listeners through ESG investing and what it means? Sure. So um, it's it's not a new concept. It's just a new brand, right? This ESG currently it stands for Environment, Social, and Governance, and this used to be you know corporate social responsibility, um, socially targeted investments was another name for it. Um, basically, once um, the media and everyone catches up with their moniker, they change their moniker. And by they, I'm talking about the political class on the left. Um, that that really pushes ESG, not just in investing, but in all aspects of life. And basically, if I had to boil it down to a very narrow definition, what ESG is, is the politicization of corporate America um, by leftist activists. That's essentially what it boils down to. Whatever an activist group wants, if they're focused on environmental issues, if they're focused on social issues, if they're focused on governance issues, they try and change public policy and culture by being the tail that wags the dog of corporate action. Um, 
so that's essentially, uh, in a nutshell, what it what it really is. So walk us through how do they do that? What's their method to getting into these corporations, and what are the key messages that they're trying to push out to the general public? Sure. So um, we'll start with the E, right? The, the environmental push. So what they'll do is they'll invest in corporations, right, so that they're a shareholder, so that they have a voice that the company management needs to listen to. And here in the United States, the way that this um, happens is when publicly traded companies hold their annual meetings, these shareholders show up in droves, right? They'll have proxy votes on, on the annual ballot on initiatives. So we can take one concrete example from this year in the environmental wing, Chevron, is a very large, um, you know, natural gas and oil uh, producer and refiner here in the United States of America. Well, the activists had bought up so much of the stock in Chevron that 53% of their shareholders, so a majority of their shareholders this year voted, that Chevron needs to join the Paris Climate Accord. Think about that. The United States is withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord specifically because it is going to be harmful to American energy businesses, but the activists have pushed so much on that issue that now they want they want an American company to somehow unilaterally join a disastrous international accord. And this is going to cost Chevron untold amounts of money, but the activists don't care. That's the interesting part. They buy up shares, but they don't actually care about the success of the companies. Right. They care about pushing their political issues and scoring political victories because the, the the liberal activists who push ESG, they know one thing very, very well. You don't need to change a law to change the culture. If you can get everybody acting in a certain way, you don't need to change the law. Right. You can just change the action. So uh, give us some idea who funds this. I mean, this um, is uh, seems to be a very well executed and well planned initiative, um, but there has to be dollars behind it. Do you have any visibility on oh. who is funding all of this uh, activity? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a well coordinated group, right? So in the United States, it's an organization called As You Sow, S-O-W, and this is a coordinated group of state pension funds in liberal states like New York and California, asset managers such as Walden Asset Management, um, Walden Boston Trust, Trillium Asset Management, um, and then there's the activist groups, uh, the the SEIU, which is a big union here in the United States, the Teamsters. They're heavily involved in all of this. So it's those are the coordinated shareholder activists. Then what we have is organizations such as BlackRock, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. Uh, Pre-pandemic, they managed somewhere around $7 trillion in assets. And as an asset manager, they're using other people's money to push ESG initiatives. They are, in fact, one of the largest shareholders in who? Chevron. And they supported this crazy initiative because the CEO of BlackRock uses other people's money to push his politics onto these corporations, which is just wildly hypocritical because he would hate it if someone tried to do that to his company, but he'll, he'll look at other companies and push his politics, and his name is Larry Fink. Um, he's, a, he's a far left radical, but he's in charge of $7 trillion in assets. That's an amazing amount of power that is wielded by one man, um, and he can, he can inform you know, enforce whatever ESG change he wants, essentially, 
on other American publicly traded corporations. So yeah, you are, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head when you say that this is, you know, this this is well executed. Uh, the the left is very organized at this process. They've been doing it for decades, and they've been doing it with an incredible amount of success. So talk to us about, you know, it, it really seems like uh, using this ESG um, is really uh, uh, pushing a very socialist, even Marxist agenda and where these corporations are going to uh, are killing themselves from within. What can an average shareholder or an average citizen do to push back against this initiative to make sure that we have democracy and the free market system and policies that are, are driven by the people instead of some activist? What can we do? Well, first, you've got to take back your franchise, right? When we think of voting, we only think of voting when it comes to you know political ballot boxes. But in fact, only about one in three individual shareholders vote on their proxy ballots. So that means, and, and again, we talked about how the left is coordinated. So we know who that one in three is that's voting, right? Uh, somewhere around 30, 30, 33 percent. Um, so individuals, when you get your proxy ballots, don't throw them in the trash. You need to see what the activists are pressing these corporations to do, what what conservatives um, so often do when they see an action that they don't like is their motivation is to disengage, right? So if we see a company like Nike, for example, which is very anti, it takes very anti-American stances all of the time, right? Um, they, they support everyone kneeling for the national anthem and things like this, which is just disgraceful. Our, our inclination is to burn our Nikes and say we're not going to buy them anymore. Well, the left does the opposite. The left, when they see a company taking an action they don't like, they engage with that company. They get in their face. They get their voices heard. So we need to follow the left's model, and that model is corporate engagement, not corporate disengagement. So if you see a bank, for example, um, that won't lend anymore to a gun manufacturer, they won't lend um, to the fossil fuel industry, Go to a region, go to one of the regional banks and talk to the manager and say, do you agree with the corporate policy coming from your bosses? You know, if you see Starbucks taking an anti-religious freedom position, don't say I'm never going to drink Starbucks again. Go into your local Starbucks, ask to talk to the manager and say, do you agree with what the, you know, the CEO of your company has been doing? Do you agree with this stance? Because that's how the left scores these victories, by constant and vigilant engagement with corporations, not through backing down. Well, all very interesting. I think uh, most citizens don't even realize uh, what is happening um, in uh, corporate uh, uh, companies in North America and what to do about it. So um, where do they get more information if they want to become more engaged and really help push back? I mean, in in Canada, our big issue is that um, our resource sector is under attack um, from these activists and they use ESG to go into either uh, financial groups uh, that maybe uh, fund the resource sector or go out to shareholders, where do they get more information on pushing back uh, on on this ESG and really exposing it for what it is? Yeah, come check out our website, nationalcenter.org. I'm on Twitter, at Dan Hoff Justin. Um, I'm, I, I love to help folks uh, with their specific companies they've got issues with, with the specific sectors. 
I'm always, I'm always, you know, willing and able and ready to help anybody get involved in this space because, look, again, the left is changing our culture right before our very eyes, and they're using the corporate lane to do it. And the right is decades behind in this battle, and we really need um, more, more happy warriors joining the fight. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Je- I'm speaking with Justin Danhoff, director of the Center for Free Enterprise Project. Thanks for coming to the show. We're off to a break. It's Bamford Info Patroni on News Talk 10, and it's time for the news with uh, Brandon Dupont. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. It's hour two of the Mark Petroni Show. I'm Jocelyn Bamford, filling in for the vacationing Mark Petroni. And let me tell you, this is not as easy as it might look. Um, hopefully, Mark's okay with what we're doing on the show today. Jyoti's been very helpful helping me through. Um, and as the weather, uh, you look outside, it is going to be rainy today. But you know what? We need the rain, so we're okay with it. Um, uh, we're just waiting for our next guest to call in. Um, and uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the red tape challenge and uh, uh, the small business and how um, SMEs are going to be included. But before we get to that, I want to chat a little bit about uh, our last guest and um, what we uh, heard from him. Um, we, he talked about ESG, and I think that that is an issue that a lot of people aren't aware of, what influence some of these organized groups have on our large corporations, uh, businesses, and uh, really trying to influence politics, not only through the political lens, but through the corporate lens as well. And, you know, when you look back at how this all started, it started in 2015, um, right out of the United Nations Global Compact, uh, which uh, was a global compact that had um, some items that they wanted uh, people to really engage um, in a corporate sense. And that what they did was they went out and got two uh, groups to really go out and push this, one in Canada and one in the United States, and get them to adapt and sign on with this United Nations Global Compact. Well, you know, some of those items on first blush appear to be quite virtuous, but then when you peel back the onion on some of those, you really see that uh, some of them are, are, are quite concerning, especially the attack in Canada on our resource sector. And when you attack the resource sector, you attack the manufacturing sector, and that really costs jobs in the economy. So really encourage people to do some due diligence. Catherine Swift has done some great work at researching this and, and doing some understanding. And she's going to be on Friday's show to talk a little bit more about this. But it's something that we really ought to be aware of, because when we're talking about the future, we're really talking about um, our, our kids' jobs, um, our economy 
economy and our ability to support prosperity in this country. And uh, uh, anytime you have external forces really going in and trying to derail some of these things, um, you think about the blockade, you think about uh, their influence in um, indigenous culture. A lot of their indigenous culture um, uh, is, is very much uh, for the resource sector, not against the resource sector. And you just don't see that story come out. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Indigenous groups that really see the resource sector as a way um, forward to prosperity for them. And, uh, you know, we really need to uh, really look at su and support that. So I'm encouraging all of you to really take a, a, a clear look at ESG investing, look at the United Nations Compact and what it stands for and how it really impacts um, the Canadian economy and uh, see if it's something that we really want to have a critical eye to and make sure that we are supporting jobs in the economy here in Canada. Um, we are now ready for uh, the Minister for Small Business and Red Tape, the Honourable Prambit Sakaria. Welcome to the program, Minister. Uh, thank you very much uh, for having me. It's an absolutely uh, a pleasure, and I hope everyone had a great weekend. And I can tell you uh, from experience that this minister is very engaged in small to medium-sized business. I have been invited to some roundtables with uh, Minister Sakaria, and has he's always demonstrated the ability to want to understand about business, about prosperity. Um, so we're quite happy to have him today. So, Minister, could you talk to the listeners about the red tape? challenge, um, progress, and the Buy Ontario effort. Yes, it's, um, uh, thank you, Jocelyn. It's, uh, you know, the, the tackling the barriers and the red tape challenge, you know, uh, originally, uh, you know, before we, before COVID and, and during COVID, I think represented uh, a good opportunities for, for us to find ways to really stimulate the economy and make sure we made it easier to do business uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh, and I think that's really one of the focuses of both Premier Ford and our government has been, you know, how can we just get out of the way of businesses, uh, let them do what they do best, which is create jobs. So now with, you know, when the onset of COVID, there was uh, a lot of difficulties that uh, uh, came forward. And we wanted to make sure that from a regulation standpoint, uh, from a standpoint of um, you know, the ease of doing business, we really tried to help and support our small businesses, medium-sized businesses, or any businesses for that matter. And so we launched the Tackling the Barriers website portal, which gave businesses the opportunity to pitch ideas uh, to the government as to what kind of changes can be made to help them during the pandemic. And, um, you know, within a couple of days of the launch, we saw tons of requests coming through. We've, we've received over 1,400 uh, um, a request on, on specific reg changes. We've made, um, uh, we're, you know, we're investigating over uh, 500 of them right now, and, and we've been able to make some great changes, whether it's been allowing trucks uh, or allowing deliveries of supplies to 24-hour um, 24, 24 delivery of supplies to businesses across um, the, the province, which wasn't actually the case before. There were regulations in place um, that prevented that, but given how um, uh, some of, a lot of the, the, whether it was food, drugs, pharmacies, they were all, a lot of them were on short supply. We had to make sure we made those reg changes, allowing restaurants to deliver alcohol with their takeout orders, um, you know, giving the ability 
uh, uh, for uh, you know just a rapid response on the healthcare side. We were able to make some changes there to allow um, healthcare workers um, you know, to use uh, uh, foreign nationals as well for support when they were uh, tapped out of resources. So there were there were a lot of changes that were made very quickly to help uh, support uh, whether it was businesses, whether it was um, uh, the uh, uh, public system. Uh, but it was really through the lens of uh, reducing uh, just the, the red tape that that exists currently um, to help uh, support our businesses through some of the toughest challenges that they've come through, um, uh, especially now and, and since uh, you know given the onset of COVID and, and, and some of the forced shutdowns that occurred and and the impacts on revenue. So we want to continue this. This has been a, a good, um, a strong point for the government of making sure. Um, that we always uh, support our businesses, do whatever we can to get out of their way, make common sense regulatory changes that can help um, in- improve uh, processes, help improve um, just the business climate in the province of Ontario that will then hopefully lead to, to more jobs and a better attractive investment uh, um, uh, atmosphere for a lot of these businesses. I'm here with Minister of Small Business and Red Tape uh, uh the Honourable Prambit Sakaria. Um, Minister, you uh, held a, a series of roundtables um, with small to medium-sized business. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the themes emerged and, and what challenges they have and how you're going to address those? Yeah, we've had, um, you know, first of all, it's, you know, the small businesses have taken, you know, medium-sized businesses have taken some of the biggest hits during COVID. There's, you know, many different ways they've been impacted. It's not just their revenues, cash flows. There's labor issues. Um, there, there's, there's so many issues that they're facing uh, today. I had the opportunity to have about, um, in conclusion, we've been close to eighty uh, to eighty-five roundtables in the last three months from different regions, different areas of the province, um, in different cities. Um, so we covered a wide variety of not just um, uh, regions, but also business types. Uh, so whether it's from the retail side, whether it's from the resources side, whether it's from the manufacturing side. Um, and every single business has their unique um, uh, issues and, and, and unique uh, um, uh, challenges. But I think if we, need to, if we were really to kind of break it down and, and see, you know, what are some of the most common themes that exist uh, uh, for businesses right now, I think you can really um, you can really uh, narrow it down to a couple of themes. I think one of the first uh, themes that really comes off um, is you know needing the, to really improve uh, consumer confidence in the province uh, uh, as we come into a phase three, as we come into um, the next uh, uh, reality that COVID is. Uh, how do we get uh, uh, how does the province safely and gradually reopen and, and really get people to believe in that and get them out to supporting their businesses, um, the supporting the shop local, shop safe, shop with confidence, and, and buy Ontario. Um, liquidity and stability continues to be uh, a significant issue. You know, cash flow, access to credit, uh, um, those are really core issues uh, for small businesses, uh, you know, especially during a period of lost revenue. Um, you know, staffing challenges and, and safety constor, uh, concerns, uh, the ability to staff, um, you know, access to child care, those, those, will, those are also big issues. And then if you go into kind of some of the more rural areas, you know, even access, uh, expanded access, the broadband coverage is an issue. Um, and then what, one of the things that we've seen is in the, in the past couple of months, the biggest um, hurdle for some businesses has been 
how do we get them online? Because now we're in a much more digital world, but there's also a ton of opportunities if they can go digital. And that's when, you know, one of the programs our government launched was Digital Main Street, a $57 million um, investment into helping small businesses go digital. But, you know, just improving the, uh, their ability to go digital was uh, something that really needed to, we, we really needed to help them with. And then um, I think another uh, key challenge was just access to PPE. How can we get... Um, uh, small businesses of PPE they need. So these are the challenges that we're, we're really facing right now with some of our small businesses and, and, and something that we really need to continue monitoring and, and seeing where, you know, as the first phase of Ontario's action, economic action plan was about uh, $10 million in support for uh, small businesses. How do we, you know, move it forward with the next uh, Ontario economic action plan? And that's what we're working with both Premier Ford and Minister uh, uh, Phillips on. And one last question. Um, small to medium-sized business um, have really been faced with a lot of challenges. Uh, electricity costs, um, uh, one specific is under the new free, free trade agreement, um, uh, there is uh, provisions for Buy America. How do we ensure that Ontario SMEs are included in infrastructure projects um, that can help uh, really get them through this pandemic? You're you're absolutely right. When we look at uh, some of the challenges we face, um, you know, the first point you you know just hit on is energy, and I know Jonathan, you've done a, a great amount of work uh, on this, and it continues to be probably our biggest um, factor in attracting investment or even maintaining our, our manufacturing sector here. I think that is going to be probably the most critical file um, for us as we go forward over the next um, you know months, weeks or a year or so to, to, to really see how we can find a solution uh, for those Class B operators, uh, businesses, uh, um, because significantly speaking, when you're, you're looking at the challenges, um, uh, you know, just from a pricing standpoint, you can see the difference. And, and we're competing against uh, our, um, the Great Lakes, uh, the states from the Great Lakes. You know, we're approaching businesses from um, uh, Ontario, uh, trying to approach as many as they can because we have some of the best businesses set up here. So we've got to be very uh, cognizant of that, and, and we've really got to find some solutions. When we look at, you know, Amer- by American policies, when we look at policies, um, you know, how can we support our own? I think we look at uh, policies like uh, Made in Ontario. Um, that's, I think, something, you know, we've seen a high level of patriotism during our, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Canadians, you know, regardless of political stripes, have really come together. I think it's really, uh, you know, uh, a chance for us to, to, if we can shift our uh, buying habits, um, I think we can make significant uh, impacts on uh, the bottom line for many businesses across this province. If we can look for that made in Ontario flag, if we can look for that, sorry, pin sticker, um, that's going to really help support and drive small businesses um, in the province of Ontario, medium-sized businesses. And I think that's what we can really focus on. Let's support our small business. Let's support our main streets. Uh, let's shop local when we can, shop with confidence, shop safe, um, You know, uh, participate in the Made in Ontario programs where we can buy um, and buy goods produced in Ontario, purchase goods that are uh, produced in Ontario, manufactured in Ontario. I think that's going to be really um, a good opportunity for us to, to, to get some of our businesses back on track. And, and they can have significant, you know, just trying to shift uh, buying patterns can have significant, significant impacts uh, on the Ontario economy. So I think that's really what we want to drive and really focus on here in the next coming days, weeks, and, and months. And on that, thank you very much, uh, Minister Prambit Sakaria, Minister of Small Business and Red Tape, and we'll let you go on that. 
Thank you so much. And, and it's absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks Jocelyn. so much. And we are off for a break. It's Jocelyn Bamford in for Mark Petroni on Saga 960. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960AM.ca. Listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. If you'd like to call, here's the number 416 640 0200. That's 416 640 0200. The Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we're back. Welcome to the last 45 minutes of the show. Uh, I'm Jocelyn Bamford, sitting in for the vacationing Mark Petroni. For the last few minutes of news, freedom-loving awesomeness. So um, we're going to focus in the last little bit that we have here um, on something that a lot of Ontario's Ontarians and Canadians really don't know that's happening with our federal government, and that is the proposed uh, classification of plastics as toxic. You know, a lot of people think when they think about that, they think of, oh, we have to stop water bottles from being in the ocean. But there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. And joining me on the program is John Galt, who's the president and CEO of Husky Fuel Injections. Husky is a world leader with over 55 hundred employers employees welcome to the program john good afternoon. good morning jocelyn how are you and thanks for joining us so tell us about sepa the canadian environmental protection act's objective of designating plastics as toxic and what it's going to mean to canadian business and the canadian consumer okay well um first of all as you said really what canada is trying to do through sepa is to designate plastics, all plastics, as a Schedule One toxic substance. That's going to allow the government to bring forth regulatory controls without going through a parliamentary process. I think fundamentally, I think all of us agree that there is got to be a focus on eliminating plastic waste, that we need to act to reduce plastic pollution, but labeling a safe substance, a toxic substance, is not the right way to go about it. When I talk a little bit about toxicity, maybe we should mention a few of the commonly available plastics and um, how we use them in so many important ways. So the ones I'm going to talk to are the ones I'm most familiar with here at Husky, which are the applications for plastics that are used in medical and food uh, and beverage packaging applications. So one of those materials is PET. Um, PET is a medical grade recyclable material. PET stands for polyethylene terephthalate otherwise commonly known as polyester, something we use in water bottles, carbonated beverage bottles, textiles, clothing, carpeting, uh, you name it. Uh, the material is used in many applications, including many medical applications. When I say medical applications, um, it's used for surgical sutures, it's used for dilators, it's used for artificial human blood vessels, and during COVID, the masks and everything else you see protecting people are also made out of the very same material. It's been chosen because it's shadow resistance, 100% recyclable, hygienic, inert, and has a very low carbon footprint. So if we designate a material like that toxic and we allow the government to come in with regulations controlling its use and application, we have to be concerned about what that means to the access to this material and the access to so many important applications. 
And maybe I'll highlight right now kind of the irony of the government proposing this is that if you look at PET, again, polyester, you'll see that there's been a surge in demand since the pandemic because of where it's used. What we've also seen is a surge in the use for other medical grade plastics um, where we're focusing on things like um, delivery systems for vaccines that are being generated. So if you look at Husky today, we're also working on applications uh, that involve testing kits, delivery systems, new types of uh, syringes to deliver vaccines, and all of those natures. So there's an enormous amount of investment in R&D and innovation right now in finding ways to scale the ability to deliver all of these necessary things to people at a much greater scale than what we've seen historically. So our concern is if the, com if the government takes a broad-based approach to this and simply decides to designate materials as toxic substances, despite the fact that they can't be toxic given their intimate application with human beings, that it may result in implications to the supply chain of these materials or our freedom to design these new devices that are so critically required. Okay, could you provide an overview of the plastic industry in Canada, the jobs, the financial size of the industry, and, and what all of this, uh, if, if the federal government uses SEPA, uh, which is the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, and declares it toxic as a way of getting around legislation, what impact is it going to have on Canadian industry and uh, industry right here in Ontario? Okay, well, if I start with Husky, um, we, over, we employ over 1,200 team members here in Bolton, in Ontario, just outside of Toronto, northwest of the airport. And we spend about $60 million annually through about 190 suppliers that employ over 10,000 hardworking Ontarians. And as you said, we employ a much larger number of people worldwide. If you look at the plastics industry in Canada, total sales are estimated at about $35 billion dollars. Resin representing about $10 billion of that. Plastic products about $25 billion. And that accounts for just over 5% of sales of the Canadian manufacturing center, sector. Excuse me. That industry employs about 93,000 people today over uh, a basis of over 1,930 different private businesses. If you take that even more broadly to the U.S., there's another 574,000 people involved in the U.S. plastics industry. And in PET alone, that one material I was talking to represent about half of that, about 265. So there's a lot of money, jobs, and livelihoods at stake when we talk about this issue. And, and talk to me about the impact of this, because I, I know uh, just from the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers, we have a, a baked goods company that has chosen plastics uh, for packaging of their product because they felt it was the most hygienic. Um, and certainly if they are forced to retool, they would be uh, looking at uh, potential of, of moving um, you know, part of their business because they do have other locations. Um, because the cost is going to be uh, uh, prohibitive. So talk to me about the impact of this legislation that you think could have on industry in Ontario and Canada. Well, I think, Joseon, you bring up a great point, which is really not just plastic, but how it's used and why it's used. So to your point, in terms of providing a lightweight, shatterproof, hygienic, inert packaging material, that's the reason that plastics have found such wide-scale adoption. And as you say... The primary purpose was to permit, to basically reduce food waste and to ensure that nothing during the distribution channels got between 
the freshly produced products, whether by Mother Nature or in a bakery, and the consumer. And so, to your point, if you think about eliminating that, you think about all of the jobs associated with it, but you also have to deal with one of the biggest issues we face on a global basis, not just in Canada, and that's the fact that about 10% of all food produced today is wasted. And so what you're going to see is an increased amount of waste. You're going to see an increase that's going to come through in the form of additional costs and the risk of cross-contamination during handling and other things. So I think to your point, not only is it going to cost a lot of jobs, not only is it going to potentially increase the issue of um, food waste, which, by the way, biological waste represents, uh, or bio-waste or food waste, represents about 45% of the 2 billion tons of waste that are produced globally on an annual basis. Um, I think uh, what you're going to see is a movement of jobs. Uh, people are going to have to consider alternatives, and those alternatives may not be as effective. So tell us what you think is motivating Health Canada to enact this. I think the issue more than any other appears to be one of control. Um, I think the issue is that jurisdictionally, the provincial governments uh, are responsible for waste management. It is not a federal issue. I think there are um, a small group of people who are lobbying the government uh, with their own agenda to try to get control of an industry, try to get control of an individual. Um, an individual right to choose, quite frankly, in this case. I don't think, as I said, they're dealing with the right issue. I don't think it'll have any effect on the plastics in the environment issue, but I think what it does do is it elevates another level of control for the federal government, um, and in doing so allows those special interest groups to have huge effect on policy. Um, the concern I have in that, and you know that, Jocelyn, is what any restriction to freedom might mean. And, and certainly we've seen uh, uh, a pattern of restriction of freedom. Um, we want to see uh, great Canadian companies like Husky um, continue to thrive and grow. And we want to see uh, our manufacturing sector in all areas, especially in Ontario, uh, continue to grow. So uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, John. I'm with John Galt, President and CEO of Husky Fuel Injections, um, uh, bringing uh, forward an issue that a lot of Canadians don't realize, and that is the declaring uh, plastics as toxic. And with that, we'll let you go, and we're off to commercial. I'm Jocelyn Bamford, in for Mark Petroni on Saga 960. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on Saga960am.ca. Listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. If you'd like to call, here's the number 416 640 0200. That's 416 640 0200. The Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. Welcome back. It's Jocelyn Bamford in for the vacationing Mark Petroni. Joining us next on the program is Minister Jeff Urich, Minister of the Environment, Conservation and Parks. Minister Urich, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Um, the federal government is moving to label, as we just talked about with our last guest, um, all plastics as toxic. Um, what effect do you think that's going to have on Ontario man manufacturing? And what are your thoughts on this and how it 
what are we going to do to uh, to address this? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the province of Ontario uh, isn't supportive of a, of a single-use ban yet, or the federal government moving into our jurisdiction to, to deem uh, plastics as toxic. Um, currently, right now, the, the provincial government, we're underway in a transformation uh, with regards to recycling. We're, we're moving towards a, a producer responsibility model, which means uh, the producers of the waste, uh, those creating the uh, the, the plastics recyclables uh, uh, will take total uh, control and cost of, of the Blue Box program. And what we're doing right now is to standardize that program to create uh, what they call the circular economy, where we uh, will collect and reuse uh, uh, those products and, and give them a second life. And, and uh, you know, we think that's the best step to go forward at this point, because uh, right now, too many of, of plastics uh, are ending up in our landfills. In fact, uh, uh, 70% of what's in our blue box actually ends up in the, uh, uh, the landfills because uh, the, the products are, aren't standardized or they're, they're tainted one way or another. So through our program, we're going to standardize the list that we can recycling. And, and that's going to allow producers uh, to control their costs by changing their packaging model. It's also going to allow us to um, create that economy where we're actually creating a, a reused recycling product. And and I think uh, if you look at it, if, if the federal government goes forward and steps into provincial jurisdiction, um, you're going you're gonna to hurt the uh, manufacturing industry in this province because uh, um, we have uh, a lot of competition in this world. Uh, we have, uh, we're looking for investment back in Ontario, and we really want to see the, the chemical and plastic industry grow. We also want to see other manufacturers stay competitive. And if you uh, move in and, and make plastic toxic, it's going to be quite a hardship, and I and I feel manufacturers look for other jurisdictions to head to. And it also doesn't address uh, uh, imports into this country because it seems like increasingly the federal government penalizes our own manufacturers while leaving uh, folks that are manufacturing outside of this country at, come in uh, unchecked. They don't have to deal with carbon tax. They aren't going to have to deal with this plastics ban. And um, it really seems like our federal government is really at cross purposes to our own Ontario manufacturing and Canadian manufacturing. But um, talk to us a little bit about um, your plan and the, the uh, Blue Box program and what it's going to mean um, to manufacturers and the um, the the input from manufacturing into this program. Well, certainly, uh, we're right in the middle of the consultation process where we're going to be moving the responsibility and costs of the Blue Box program over to the manufacturers, those that are producing the waste. So, uh, one immediate benefit there is freeing up the municipalities of the money they're now spending, which is upwards to fifty percent of the cost of their Blue Box programs. Um, this will entail um, a standardization of what products can go into the blue box, and uh, that will ensure whether you're living in uh, uh, northern Ontario, Muskoka, or southwestern Ontario, the same thing will go into the blue box program. And what, what's benefit about this is uh, manufacturers will now uh, understand uh, the type of, of packaging or products they're creating, uh, how they will be recycled. And if they feel they want to cut costs, they can change the packaging to suit a more uh, green uh, uh, focus and allow their product to be uh, recycled. 
the other aspect of this, it's also opened up in a new economy called the circular economy where businesses will now uh, be a part of uh, collecting and reusing uh, those plastics and or other recyclable material and creating new product and, and into the, the market system, which in itself uh, will, will really bolster our economy and create new jobs. Um, so I, what, what I really like about this program is it's a partnership between government and business and business taking responsibility for the for the waste they're creating and then creating new avenues to put that back into uh, into our economy and, and create jobs and have a greener greener Ontario. So talk to me, have, have you done any uh, uh, due diligence on what the cost is going to be for a manufacturer that that um, is manufacturing currently is tooled up for uh, single use plastics because they decided that that's the most hygienic uh, uh, way to package their product. What's the impact on on overall manufacturers' cost in Ontario with this blue box program? Well, you know, there will be an uptake in cost as they're taking on the full cost of the program. However, uh, how the system currently works, which is which is failing because most of our product is ending up in landfill or plastics, uh, right now the, the, the businesses uh, pay for approximately 50% of the blue box cost through Stewardship Ontario. Uh, they have no control of the cost structure. So if the municipalities want to increase the cost of the Blue Box program, uh, businesses are on the hook for 50% of that increase ongoing. And and we've projected uh, uh, the, the cost just skyrocketing over the next uh, uh, five to ten years uh, uh, due to uh, the, the marketplace. Uh, the way we're switching it, not only are we standardizing the process, is is now the businesses will have control of, of the cost of the program. So they will be held to a standard uh, of, of ensuring the Blue Box program is, is uh, continual and growing. Nobody's going to lose their, their pickup at their houses, uh, but there'll be expanded opportunities to recycle. Um, but they're able to change their packaging um, uh, to, to fit uh, their cost de- decreases. And I think that's the one way... Uh, to, to make change in packaging as opposed to an outright ban is the fact that if businesses want to uh, decrease their costs in, the, in, the stru- in, in, their, in their businesses, you know, they'll work to change their, pro- their packaging. And, and, you know, it, it's not actually, it won't happen overnight. And some businesses will have to stay with the single-use packaging because that's the most uh, hygienic way to, develop, to deliver the product. And, you know, we've really seen through this pandemic that single-use plastics do actually play a role in, in, in keeping the health and safety of Ontarians intact. So uh, it adds flexibility to the businesses moving forward. It, it, it improves uh, our recycling of plastics and, and other recyclables in this province, and it ensures that Ontario's, Ontarians have a safe, clean environment, but also have uh, service available to them to, to deal with their waste. So how are you going to make sure that manufacturers are continue to be competitive um, when, uh, when with this blue box program in their manufacturing? Well, I, we're working with them on a standardized list, uh, and, uh, um, and they, they've actually come to us, manufacturers, uh, wanting to set uh, high target rates right now. Um, there are no uh, real target rates with regards to recycling and 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 uh, keeping our environment clean. Um, uh, as I said, majority of the product ends up in our landfills anyways. The manufacturers have been quite uh, great partners uh, with creating this system. They understand they're taking on the cost of the full responsibility, but now they have control of how 
that program will will uh, grow in this province and and they've they've wanted us to set uh, high targets which are in the middle of consultation on which will ensure that uh, the the waste is not heading into our landfills or lakes and rivers but instead is, is working towards that circular economy I talked about earlier um, so I you know it's a great partnership and it's not an added uh, uh, you know, in, imp- impediment to uh, investment in our province. People will still come and invest into our province without knowing that, uh, you know, there's a product that's banned, there, there's an extra cost to their packaging uh, immediately because the federal government's decided to, to, to move in and, and, and ban product. Instead, you know, uh, they're coming into a, a situation where they have flexibility in how they're going to package your product. They know a responsibility and they'll be able to work to control that cost uh, of the recycling program, so um, I, I'm proud to say we're working quite hand in hand with uh, with uh, manufacturing uh, in this province to to deliver a program uh, that's suitable to Ontarians. So Ontario is one of the most difficult jurisdictions to expand manufacturing plants uh, due to the environmental assessment and the time it takes to have that. Uh, environmental uh, assessment, as well as the cost. Um, Your government's announced plans to streamline this. Could you tell our listeners about these changes and what impact it's going to have? Certainly. uh, We just, uh, the legislature just passed uh, uh, Bill 197, which will enable the government to uh, move forward with modernizing the Environmental Assessment Act. Uh, So we'll bring in consultation immediately on the regulations uh, that uh, will we'll shorten the time period. Currently, right now, it takes an, an average six to eight years uh, to uh, get the environmental assessment complete before you can put the shovels in the ground, which is a long time for businesses wanting to invest. Uh, we are going to uh, standardize uh, uh, the type of uh, process with the environmental assessment. Right now, um, it currently takes two years to develop a work plan for your environmental assessment. So. Uh, we have 50 years of experience in environmental assessment, so we're going to standardize that work plan, which will immediately save two years off the process. We're also going to standardize uh, the, the types of, uh, uh, of activities that do need environmental assessment and how that environmental assessment will play out, which should save at least another year of work. And we're also going to put timelines on government's response. Right now, there is no timeline as when a government will approve or reject uh, uh, an environmental assessment or even the, the development of the work plan. We're going to put a timeline time limit on the ministry's response and the minister's approval so that businesses do have, a, 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 have an idea of when the process will end. And we're hoping through these amendments that we're going forward and through our consultation with municipalities and indigenous communities and, of course, businesses, that will save up to 50% of the time it takes to do environmental assessment so that businesses can invest and build and create jobs while protecting the environment. Thank you, Minister uh, Minister Jeff Urich, uh, Minister of Environment, Conservation and Parks. And we're off to a break uh, on Saga 960, Jocelyn Bamford, and for Mark Petroni. Thank you. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. You were listening to the Mark Petroni Radio Program. If you'd like to call, here's the number. 
416-640-0200. That's 416-640-0200. The Mark Petroni Radio Program, heard exclusively on News Talk Saga 960. And we're back. Uh, it's Jocelyn Bamford in for the vacationing, Mark Petroni. Closing out the program today, we have Dr. Patrick Moore, founder of EcoSense. And Dr. Moore was one of the founders of Greenpeace Canada, and he was the first person to ever bravely speak out about how, how activists have hijacked the environmental movement in Canada. His book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, is a must-read. Um, it's the making of a sensible environmentalist. And uh, thanks for joining us on the program, Dr. Patrick Moore. Good morning, Jocelyn. Nice to speak with you. And how is the weather out there on the West Coast today? It's a bit foggy, but the sky is blue above, so I'm expecting it'll burn off pretty quickly. Wonderful. We just had the Ontario Minister of the Environment, Jeff Urich, and the CEO of Husky Injection Moldings, John Galt, talking about the federal government's attempt to label plastics as toxic. So what are your thoughts about this? Well, if plastics were toxic, we probably wouldn't wrap our food with them and put our food in them all the time when we put it in a microwave or whatever. I mean, plastic is about the most non-toxic thing there is. Wood is more toxic than plastic in that wood contains quite a few chemicals. Uh, but plastic is a pure substance. The polyethylene, polyurethane, polyvinyl chloride, otherwise known as vinyl or PVC, these products are non-toxic. That is why when they're in the uh, ocean, which people are all worried about that there's plastic in the ocean, uh, they should be uh, concerned about wood in the ocean because there's a lot of wood in the ocean. It comes down rivers when there are landslides and floods uh, and gets broken up into pieces on the, and there's wood on the beach. And uh, what's wrong with that? Uh, the fact is 1,300 species of marine life make plastic their home when it's in the sea. They, they, they stick to it and grow on it like pelagic barnacles are one of the main ones. And they use it as a way of, uh, of living. So, and and if, you, if you throw, for example, a plastic uh, glass or I mean, uh, you know, a drinking plastic thing in the ocean, uh, they'll live in there as a house and use it as a shelter if it's on the bottom of the sea. Uh, I, 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 the, my fellow Greenpeacers back in the day were quite horrified that I would throw tin cans and, uh, and plastic containers overboard so that they would sink to the bottom uh, where they would provide a home for creatures. And so this, this whole idea that plastic is bad and plastic is toxic is so completely stupid that uh, I just don't understand how people can buy their meat with a plastic wrap on it or, or buy their, you know, take a juice containers made of plastic. Uh, if it was toxic, we wouldn't use it for those things. And yet people don't put two and two together very well there, do they? So you were the first one to kind of blow the lid on what happened within the environmental movement, and you were one of the founders of the environmental movement. Talk to us about what you think is motivating this ban on plastics in Canada. Well, in the very bottom of it all is it's a proxy uh, for the war against fossil fuels because most plastics are made 
from coal, oil, and gas. PVC, for example, polyvinyl chloride. The monomer, which is vinyl chloride, is made from salt and natural gas. The, the chlorine comes from salt, which we all know, of course, is sodium chloride, uh, which is an essential nutrient for most of life. Life wouldn't be the same without salt, and we, we, we ingest it uh, both because we like what it does to the flavor, but also because it's, it's an essential factor for our, for our being alive, is having salt in your body. So there's the sodium chloride, and then natural gas is CH4, carbon hydrogen 4. And that's made from plankton. Uh, what most people don't realize is that all the fossil fuels are of life origin. They were made by plants and plankton. Plants made coal, mainly, mainly trees, and plankton made oil and gas in marine sediments. And so when we're drilling for gas in the prairies, for example, we are drilling into ancient marine sediments. The prairies were once a sea. That's why they're so flat, because that was the bottom of an ocean uh, with sediments raining down on it from above, uh, full of living material, and or material of life origin, settling down on the bottom. And so the, the, the oil and, and gas and coal were all made by photosynthesis. They were all made by life, by the sun. So they're all products of solar energy. And people use words like dirty to describe the dirty oil from Alberta, for example. That's ridiculous. Oil is not dirty. Dirt is dirty, and dirt is good, because we grow all our food in the dirt. So why would you use dirty as a bad word when, in fact, uh, you know, if your pants are dirty, that's a different thing. You need to wash them because they've got dirt on them. But the dirt was made by life, not by some alien being or, or some horrible bad person. It was made by living things. So if we could only orient ourselves a little bit differently towards seeing what's around us and understanding what's around us, uh, the, the life has made so many things on this earth. And if you look around you at all the plants and all the animals and the birds, uh, that's, that, that's what's being made by the sunshine coming down on the earth. And it, com it, it, it combines all the different elements, mainly carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Those are the three main uh, elements of life. And the carbon comes from carbon dioxide, uh, which is why when you burn fossil fuels, you're just putting the carbon dioxide back into the air from where it came in the first place so, to so, make the plants. So, Dr. Moore, um, just quickly, because we're running out of time, Gerald Butts launched the Resilient Recovery, um, where this group promotes reimagining the new green economy after COVID. Um, of course, the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers, in response to that, um, launched a responsible recovery. What are your thoughts on this uh, Resilient Recovery and the group uh, behind it? Oh, it's all a bunch of propaganda, of course. The resilient recovery but that they're using that as a term to mean stop using fossil fuels and that's that's all it means it doesn't mean much else and it's stupid because it would ruin the economy it wouldn't make a resilient economy it would make a ruined economy and so we've got to recognize that one of canada's great strengths is our energy resources we are an amazing country in that sixty percent of all our electricity is from hydroelectric from renewable water energy in, in Quebec, in British Columbia, in Ontario in particular. 
60%, and another 15% of our energy is coming from nuclear power, and we've forgotten that for some reason. We should be uh, looking at to, to what Russia is doing. Uh, they are now the world's leader in nuclear technology. Even the United States quit oh. building them practically, and it's time that we started to think about that again. Uh, it, it is the energy of the future. There's, there, there's fuel for tens of thousands of years, unlike fossil fuels, which we probably should be, uh, you know, conserving to, to what extent we can. Uh, we could be replacing fossil fuels by nuclear energy for running ships, for build, running our electricity, for heating our homes and cooling our homes. And we're not going in and now they just want to shut everything down. And if you, sh- if you shut everything down, you're not going to have a resilient economy. I can assure you of that. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Patrick Moore. Check him out on EcoSense. And that is it for the Mark Petroni Show. I'm Jocelyn Bamford, your guest host. Uh, stay tuned tomorrow for uh, Peter Gossman at the helm. He'll have a wonderful show uh, talking about all kinds of subjects. Don't miss it. Thanks very much and have a great day. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.